All right, well, good morning, guys. We're going to go ahead and get started. I know a few weeks ago, I wasn't in the room when we, when we kicked off, but when we first started week one, I know there were a few new faces, new people in the room. So if you haven't met me yet, you're new here. My name is Mitchell. I am the associate men's pastor here. What I like to tell people is my job is I get to do whatever Ken doesn't want to do. So whatever's on his plate of things to do that he doesn't want to do, I have the privilege of getting to do those things. That is, that is my job. Um, but I did want to introduce myself. If I haven't met you yet, please come up and say hey afterwards. I'd love to get to know you a little more. Um, and to the people watching online, yes, you are in the right place, even though Ken is not the one teaching this morning. So I'm going uh, to pray for us this morning, and one of the things that I would like for us to do as, as I'm praying, as I pray for our time this morning as we're, we're going through the Word, um, I'm just going to ask that you guys would just silently pray as well. Pray for the Lord to show up, pray for the Lord to be here in our conversations, um, and just to, for Him to ready our hearts and minds for what we have to uh, talk about today. So Father, thank you for today, and just thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that as we, we dive into First Peter, God, that you would, you, would just, you would show up, you would be here, Lord, and that we would see um, what it means to live like Christ, what it means for us to live in this world in the here and now today. So, Lord, I pray that as we, we jump into your word this morning, that you would uh, ready our hearts, ready our minds, and, Lord, that uh, everything that I have to say would come solely from you, and anything that... I would say that is from my own mind, would just be quickly, quickly forgotten. So Lord, I pray with, that you're here with us this morning as we jump into your word. It's in your name I pray, amen. All right, so this is week three, and we've titled this week's lesson, Living and Loving Like Christ. Now, if you're like me, when I read this, the first thing that I think of is, how in the world am I supposed to do this? I know that I, I can see the example of Jesus' life reading throughout Scripture, and I, I would love to live my life like that, but I know that it is impossible for me to fully live the way that Jesus did, because Jesus was perfect, and I am a, I am a sinner. The thing that gets compounded here is, in our passage today, what we're going to see is a verse where Peter says, in all of your conduct, you are supposed to be holy like the Lord is holy. I mean, we see him quote Leviticus 11 there. He says, you shall, God says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And so you sit there and you think, how? In, in all of our conduct, uh, every little thing that we do is supposed to represent Christ. It's supposed to make us live and love like the Lord. And what's even interesting is this isn't something that Peter himself says. We see this all throughout Scripture, all throughout the New Testament, and specifically, this is from Paul in the letter to the Philippians. Um, this is by far my favorite verse in the Bible, but it says, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. This doesn't say to live as Christ, it says to live is Christ. Every single part of your life, from the smallest thing to the largest thing, you are to live as Christ. You're supposed to be like Christ. That is what our goal is. That is what we are supposed to do. And then, as Paul says here, to die is gain. Man, our 
we know there's going to be a day where Christ returns and he, he wipes away every tear in our eyes. He makes every wrong right. And the moment that we are going to be in heaven with our Heavenly Father is a huge gain. And so we see that we're supposed to live, is, to live is Christ. Our very life is to emulate that of Christ. Everything we see in the New Testament of the life of Christ is how we are to live. Now I know my generation is typically known for asking the why behind literally everything. And as I was studying this, as, as I was preparing to, to teach this, that's the question that I kept thinking through is, why am I supposed to do this? I agree that I'm, I'm supposed to do this. I see all throughout scripture that I am called to live like Christ. But why? why what is the reasoning that we, that we should be doing this? And I think Peter answers this question pretty quickly, but then spends the majority of his letter talking about this. Because if you remember, at the very beginning of chapter 1, Peter tells us that he's writing this letter to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. He goes on to list where all of them are from, and we've got all the places listed there. But the thing that I want to focus on is they were elect exiles. Part of the reason why you and I are supposed to live like Christ is because we are God's chosen people. We are the people that he has chosen to represent himself to the world. We are the elect exiles. Now, if you remember the past few weeks when we've talked about the word exiles, it's, it's pretty simple. It's somebody who is not uh, in their home, who's, who's been kicked out of where they live. Specifically, these people here were people that were not living in uh, Jerusalem, not living in Israel. They were living in all the different places that we saw at the beginning of chapter 1, whether it's um, Cappadocia, Pontus, wherever. They were living in the dispersion. They were dispersed from their home. And Peter's writing this letter to them because these people were being persecuted for their faith. Now, when we think persecution, typically what comes to our mind is physical abuse. I mean, we see this all throughout Scripture. All of the, the, the disciples were martyred for their faith. They were physically killed, physically beaten for their faith. And we, we see examples of this in the news all the time. And that's typically what comes to our minds when we think about persecution. But here, we've established the fact that that's not necessarily the persecution that these people were facing. You see, these people were most likely facing persecution that had to do, honestly, something that we're probably more familiar with than anything else. It's alienation from peers, coworkers, family members, friends. You fill in the blank. And it's kind of interesting as... As I was writing all of this, I thought back to a book that I had to read for, for seminary this past semester. It was called A Week in the Life of Ephesus. And it was a fascinating book. It took a bunch of uh, primary documents to really show what it was like to live as a believer in Ephesus during the time in which the book of Ephesians was written. And one of the things that the author of the book pointed out was Man, there were these believers who were being persecuted, but the book took place from the perspective of a, of a merchant, and he wasn't allowed to do business with certain people. He wasn't allowed to take part in any, some of the cultural events, the, the government events, things like that. He was, for the most part, alienated completely from the society that he was in, and that was the type of persecution 
that these people were facing, that Peter is writing to, to make sure that they understand, man, this is a momentary light affliction, as we talked about last week. And in writing this letter, he's pointing to the future hope that we have in Christ. It's, he's saying, man, there is, there is persecution right now. There are things that you're going through that are hard. But you as a believer are supposed to set your mind, set your hope on the future that we have with Christ. That is what gets us through. Again, I know I'm the, from the generation that asks why, but also how. How am I supposed to sit here and think, okay, my, my hope is in the future, but what does that mean for me right now? I can sit here all day and be so excited about something in the future, but between now and then, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live this way? Peter builds off of that in his letter. So he begins the first part of chapter one saying, hey, this is what you're supposed to do. You are supposed to live with the future in mind. You are supposed to live knowing and hoping for the coming of Christ so that you will one day be reunited with him and spend eternity in heaven with the Father. Then he says in verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, if you, if you remember Last week, and you'll, you'll see this a few times this semester, a, a great Bible study tool is anytime you see the word therefore, you have to ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? It's a transition statement that really talks about how Peter was saying, here's what you're supposed to do. Here is, you're supposed to live with the future in mind. Therefore, here is how you do it. I've told you what to do, and now I'm about to tell you how to do that. So we're supposed to live with setting our hope fully on the coming of the Lord. As I was thinking through, okay, how, how do you best explain how to live in the here and now with our hope being in the future? I came across this quote. It's from a book called The Weight of Glory. It's by C.S. Lewis. And I think he does a fantastic job of really understanding this picture and understanding this idea of what it means to live in the here and now with the future in mind. He says, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy, but it's the truest index of our real situation, of our real reality. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all merits. And also the healing of that old ache. I know C.S. Lewis can be kind of wordy. I mean, if you've read any of his writings, he, there are sometimes where anytime I read a book of his, I feel like I have to basically have a dictionary next to me because sometimes I'm like, what, what in the world are you talking about? But I think the point he's trying to make here is, Man, we are living here and now, hoping and waiting and anxiously waiting for the day that we are able to walk through that door. We know that it's there. We know what our future is going to be like. And the day that we get to walk through the door is going to be amazing. And that should influence the way we live now. You know, I think another way of kind of explaining this idea is, if your family's anything like mine, think about this. Think about Thanksgiving dinner. 
my family, Thanksgiving is, I love it, don't get me wrong, but it can be a little hectic because we have my entire family. I mean, my entire extended family comes together. We've got all my aunts and uncles, my grandparents, all the cousins, grandkids. I mean, everybody is there. And so growing up, when we had dinner, we had to separate basically into two tables. You had the kid table, and then you had the, the adult table. Now, I'm one of the older grandkids in my family, and so I was always one of the oldest sitting at the kid table. And I, I did not like that. I hated it. Because I always wanted to sit with the adults. I always wanted to sit with my parents because I was looking at the people that I was sitting at the table with. And I was like, I am so much older than all of you. I should not be here. And so year after year after year, I knew there would come a day where I was going to be able to sit at the adult table. And I could not wait for that day to come. But then I can remember, I can remember the Thanksgiving where I was grabbing my food, grabbing my plate, and I went to go sit down. And right before I sat down, my dad tapped me on my shoulder and he said, no, 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 you're going to come sit with us this year. And I was elated. I was so excited. I could not be more happy because I was now going to be able to sit at the adult table. I think the same principle applies to us living as believers here on earth today. Man, we know that there's going to come a day where we're going to be with our Father in heaven. We know that it's going to be amazing. But while we are here We are anxiously awaiting for that to happen. That should be our longing. We should live with this mindset of, man, we know what the future is going to hold, and this should influence everything that we do. So while we're living here on earth, while we're living here as believers, knowing that this is not our home, we should long for our eternal home with the Father. You know, last semester, we spent the entire time talking about the kingdom of God. And a phrase that we repeated over and over and over again was, we are to live with the end in mind. This statement should influence every little thing that we do, knowing what is going to happen in the end. We should live with the end in mind. Now, the passage that we're going to be in today in 1 Peter, it's chapter 1, verses 14 through the end of chapter 1, so verse 25. I think Peter addresses this question specifically of saying, here is what we are to do while we live in the here and now. And I think he comes up with three things. Now, this list that I'm about to go through is by no means exhaustive, but these three areas can really be the umbrella that covers a lot of our lives. And so the three things that I think Peter, Peter mentions here is, one, value your position. We need to be holy and understand that we are holy. Second is to honor your Redeemer or, or fear the Lord. While we are living in the here and now, we have got to understand what it means to fear the Lord and put that into practice. And then lastly, what should be the natural outpouring of doing both of these things is our love for others. We should love others. We should love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so these are the three things I think Peter is going to hit on today. And I think it's a wonderful, really a a, a guideline of what it means to live in the here and now as a believer. But again, I do want to reiterate, this is by no means a checklist. I'm not saying we take these three things and then we go home today and it's like, all right, I did this, I did this, and I did this. I'm good. Like, I'm good for the day. It's no, this is a lifestyle. This has to do with every single thing that you do, every relationship that you have, every conversation that you have. These are how you're supposed to live. So let's pick up in verse 14. 
It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You see, he says we need to be holy in all of our conduct. What's so interesting here about the word holy is it's the, the Greek word that Peter uses is the word hagios. Now, obviously this word can be translated holy as it is here, but it can carry with it the idea of something sacred, pure or consecrated, set apart. You see, that's what I want to focus on is the idea of being holy is being set apart. You see, Peter specifically refers to these people as elect exiles because they were chosen by God. You and I, if we are in Christ, we have been chosen by God. God has set us apart. Because he has set us apart, our lives should look different. Our lives should look distinctive from those around us. What it means to be holy is it means to be set apart. God has set you apart. You see, it's not something's inherent value that makes it holy. It's something is holy because God sets it apart. Think about it this way. There's, luckily for y'all, my wife and I are reading through the, the book of Leviticus right now. I know, so fun. But in the book of Leviticus, you see so many laws and so many uh, areas in which God is setting things apart, setting things up as holy and we talk about the temple, we talk about the priests, everything in the temple. Guys, the temple is really just, a, it's a building made of bricks or mortar, whatever, until God, it's just a building until God sets it apart as holy. Until God says, this is my temple where you are going to worship me, you're going to speak to me. That is why it is holy, because God designates it and says, this is set apart, this is mine. Same thing applies to the priests, everything in the temple. I mean, think about all throughout the Old Testament, you see there's utensils, bowls, earthenware, vessels. Everything in the temple, those things are just bowls or utensils until God says, no, this is holy. This is set apart. This is mine. So now because it is mine and I have set it apart, it is holy. And the amazing thing is, is that applies to you and me as well. You and I are in Christ. Our life is not a process of becoming holy. What we see here is Peter is telling us that, no, you are holy. You are already holy. If you are in Christ, God has set you apart. You were chosen by God. You are an elect exile. You are holy. You are not becoming holy. God declares you to be already holy. I think we so often miss that. I mean, how amazing is it to see that being in Christ, being a believer in the here and now, guys, God declares us holy. Peter quotes in verse 16, uh, Leviticus chapter 11, he says, It is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. See, this is a quote from God. God is speaking to Moses. He's delivering the, the law to Israel. Uh, and he says, you need to be holy, for I am holy. What happens here is so often, so many times we think to ourselves, okay, my life, I need to become holy. And so therefore, if the same thing is true here, when I read this verse, I ask myself, okay, well, does God have to become holy in order to make people holy? 
The answer to that is no. He is already holy. He is set apart. He is distinct. He is the totality of holiness. Here in a minute, I'm going to read a verse from 1 John that talks about how God is love. What I'm going to say there is it's not some aspect of his character. God is in everything that he is fully love. And the same thing applies here. God is holy. God is holiness. Every part of him, is, every part of his being is holy. He is what it means to be holy. And the same thing is true for us. You and I are holy, and we have to understand that as believers in the here and now. It's not something we're becoming. It's something that God has already declared us to be. But I think if we're going to be honest with each other, how often do we live like that? How often during our days do we actually live like we understand that we are holy? And if, I mean, if I'm being honest with myself and with you guys, I, I am not good at this all the time. I, there are moments in my life where I fail at this. But praise the Lord that he revealed those things, reveals those things to me. We have to understand that we are already holy. That's what it means for us to be a believer in the here and now. I want to give you guys some context here because Peter, when he quotes Leviticus 11, listen to what he's quoting. This is uh, Leviticus chapter 11, verses 44 through 45. He says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. You see, in the context of this verse, what's happening is God, when he's delivering the law to Moses to deliver to the people of Israel, He's telling them here that they shouldn't eat certain animals uh, that uh, are, are around them because what it will do is it will make, uh, make them unholy. Now, I, as I've been reading through Leviticus, there are some, some laws in this book that I was like, what, what in the world was going on in Israel that God had to make a law about this? I mean, there's laws about not drinking blood. I mean, you name it. There, there's a ton of things. And I was like, what are these people doing? But then I realized God was not making these laws for the people because they were doing these things. But he was giving them these laws because the people around them, the communities, communities surrounding them, the pagans around them, they were doing those things. And God was trying to make sure these people understood that you are holy you are set apart. Your life should look distinct from that of the people around you. So don't do these things. He was making sure they understood that they are already holy, according to the Lord. They were set apart, and doing these things would make them unholy. Now, a few chapters later, we see God kind of repeat the same phrase about being holy, except this time, it's him saying that, Follow him saying that after he set, places a law that is, you should do this. So we see Leviticus kind of has two types of laws. You've got the negative law and the positive law. And when I say negative, I don't mean it's a bad law and positive, it's a great law. What I mean is God says, don't do this, and then God says, do this. But the reasons behind all of these 
are because these people were set apart. They were holy. So in Leviticus 19, he says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. So you see, God is saying, you shall because you are. You shall live this way because I have already declared you to be holy. It's not you need to live this way, live up to these laws that I'm placing here so that you might become holy. It's not the process of becoming holy. If you are a believer, if you are in Christ, you are already holy. And the task for us becomes we have to live like who we are. That is what we must do. So you got value your position. We've got, we need to understand that we are holy. God has set us apart. He has made us distinct. And our lives should look that way. The next thing that I think Peter's going to jump into is honoring your Redeemer or fearing the Lord. That's great. What does that mean? How do we live a life that is fearful of the Lord? Well, picking up in verse 17, Peter says, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter writing to these people knowing that they are in the dispersion, in the, in outside of, of their home, he says, conduct yourselves with fear. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. This should be what marks your life, fear of the Lord. So what does Peter mean here? I know it, it kind of comes, it can be kind of confusing to answer the question, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Especially in a verse where this, <laughs> at this time, he's talking about God as judge. Now I know, I don't know about you, but for me, when I think of a judge, I think about somebody sitting behind a desk, bringing down a sentence, uh, condemning somebody for a crime that they may have committed. So pairing that with the fear of the Lord can seem kind of confusing. Because think of it, God is impartial. He is the completely fair judge. And we know there's going to come a day where he will judge everyone. But I think what's missed so often in this verse, and especially in this chapter, is the idea of God as judge here. It's not him finding us and condemning us. It's not him looking at us and saying, no, you are now condemned. No, what, he, what Peter is trying to get us to understand is the idea of judgment here, it carries the idea of approval or esteem. So it's God looking in you and me, trying to find the ways in which our life shows and reflects him. It shows and reflects his character. It's not him condemning us. It's him looking at us and seeing the ways in which we are showing him to the world. So I found this quote from a, uh, a commentary that we've been reading uh, for, this, for the series. It's, it'll be in the, the, the document that we handed out that has all the, the commentaries that we've read. But I think it does a wonderful job of explaining what it means to fear the Lord, especially in the context of this passage. It says, fearing God entails more than simply respecting or honoring God or holding him in high esteem. On the one hand, it's a, it's a holistic idea paired with loving God. To love God is to fear him, and to fear him is to love him. On the other hand, fearing God draws more on the concept of God as the impartial judge who cannot and will not tolerate sin. 
Such a view of the holiness of God creates within his children a healthy fear of defying God. So we see what it means to fear the Lord is really having this, this idea of having a reverence for God and for what the Lord has done. Just like this, these three things that I've talked about, that I'm going to be talking about today, are not a checklist in which you can live your life and consider everything good. Fearing the Lord is not, okay, I'm good today, I've done this. This is a lifestyle. Every single part of your life, as we've seen, all of your conduct, every relationship you have, everything that you do should be done in such a way that is fearing the Lord. This is how we are to live. Fearing the Lord is an understanding and a reverence for knowing what has been done for you. Guys, God has sent his one and only son to live a life on earth that was perfect and sinless. He was crucified on the cross. He was killed. He died. He was buried and resurrected and ascended into heaven so that you and I might have a life with him. Fearing the Lord is understanding that and letting that literally interpret everything that you do. It's a reverence for what's been done for us. Knowing that if you are in Christ, you have been made new. Your old ways are gone. You have been given a new life. You have been set apart. You are holy. And it's an understanding and having a high regard for that new identity in Christ. And you and I must place our ultimate value on this holy status. So picking up in verse 18, he says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, we were, we were bought with the precious blood of Christ. This is not just some idea that Peter comes up with. We see this all throughout the New Testament. There is a, a constantly through the writings of Paul and through the New Testament writers, this idea that, man, this, this, the ability to fear the Lord, our life being marked by the fear of the Lord, it didn't come without a cost. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he says, you do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. We know that high price to be his son. So you see, guys, when we are in Christ, we belong to God, not as his property, but as his adopted children. All throughout this letter, Peter is going to use familial language to try to get his readers, and by extension you and I, to understand that being in Christ, we are made new, and our lives now should look different. We are holy, but also... We are in the family of God. We are adopted into his family. We'll see that all throughout this, this letter. So we belong to God as adopted children, not as property. The amazing thing is what comes with that. If you and I are in Christ, we are in the family of God. We are now heirs to an imperishable, undefiled an unfading inheritance. How amazing is that? That's the beginning of this letter. Peter tells us, this is what you have in Christ. This is what you get to set your future hope on. This is yours if you 
are adopted into the family of God, but understanding that you were bought with a price, and that was the price of his son. So we understand that this passage, what it's telling us is to live in the here and now, we have to be holy, understanding that we are already holy, but then also we need to live lives that are marked by the fear of the Lord. And to do that, we, we do it by emulating Christ's character, by acting like we are God's child, knowing and understanding that, that is true, and displaying our new identity and our new character in Christ, and making sure the people around us see that, that truth. You see, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Guys, if we're in Christ, we are made new. We are set apart. We are holy. We have to understand that that is what Peter is saying. We have to understand that that is what God has made us to be. Our old ways are gone. The old us has passed away. We have been made new, and we now must live like it. So the... The natural outpouring of all of the things that I've talked about up to this point is we should love others. If we understand that we're holy, if we live a life marked by the fear of the Lord, what that should naturally produce in us is a love for other people. So why does Peter focus on this? Why is this so important? We'll look at verse 22. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. See, what he, what he focuses on here is you've been purified. Understand what being purified means here. It's, it's something that has, has been clean. It's been made new. That's you and I. We have been made new in Christ. So because of that, we are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You see, we've been transformed by the power of the gospel. Therefore, we must love others. But see, here's the thing. You and I don't get to choose who we love. Now, a lot of times, and I'm speaking from, for myself here, that's way easier said than done. We don't get to choose who we love. I can think of people, we all can think of people right now that we're like, man, sometimes it is hard to love that person. But what God tells us in his word, what Peter is telling us here is you must love others. That is what we are called to do. You don't have a choice. Matthew chapter 5, I think, speaks to this really well. It says, uh, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Again, I know I'm from the generation that asks why. I agree with this, but why do we need to love in this way? What does this have to do with holiness? What does this have to do with being holy, with, with fearing the Lord? You see, guys, when we... When we love others, what's happening is we are showing that love that has been shown to us. 
Look at 1 John 4. It says, we love each other because he loved us first. If someone says, I love God but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God who we cannot see? And he's given us this command, those who love God must also love their fellow believers. Guys, what I want y'all to understand here is you and I don't have a choice. As believers, we don't have a choice to do anything other than love other people. Do y'all understand that there are people in this world who stand against everything that you and I fundamentally believe, but we literally have no other choice but to love them. We can disagree with them, but we have to and we must love them. That is what it means to be a believer in the here and now, because that is how people see that we are made new in Christ. We have no other choice. The believer has no room in his heart to hate anyone. And I think so often we get the idea of disagreement confused with hate. And we must take a step back and evaluate ourselves and see, man, am I truly loving people? We have no other choice but to love people because it is It's been shown to us. Do you guys understand what this verse is saying? If there's anybody in this room, it's you and me that don't deserve God's love. Because before we were made new in Christ, no part of us was glorifying the Lord. But praise God that he made us new and he showed us love that we don't deserve. So what makes you think that we we would not be able to show that love to anybody? We have been made new and we've been shown a love that we don't deserve. We have to show that love to everyone. That is what we are called to do as believers. The only reason you and I can love is because we were first loved by the Lord. We have to love others. Peter says in verse 23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. You see, you and I, we are to love in this way because we have been made new. We have been born again. We've been born from above. Our life, being set apart, being holy, be distinct, is solely from the Father. It's not of our doing. We have been born again. And it's through the imperishable seed, not perishable. This isn't something that goes away. This is something that we have forever. We have for eternity and our lives should be marked by it. And it is through the living and abiding word of God. This isn't something that ever, never ends. You see, in writing this way, Peter is trying to get his readers to understand you must focus on the work of the Lord in your life. God has made you new. He's made you holy. He's made you to fear him. He's made you to love others. These are the everlasting promises of God. In summary, this comes from the same commentary that I read from earlier. I think this this sentence does a great job of really encapsulating the entire idea of Peter's letter, but also what we've talked about today. It says, Peter's point is profound. The imperishable word of God, which is the gospel message of Jesus' imperishable blood, 
is preached to perishable people, you and I, causing them to be born again, to be made new into an imperishable inheritance through their imperishable faith. Guys, we have been made new by the power of the gospel. And because of that, we have to understand that God has set us apart. Our lives should be distinct. We must be holy. We already are holy. And that should produce in us a fear of the Lord, which the outpouring of that is we love others. That what it, that's what it means to be a believer in the here and now. That's what it means to live in the here and now, being made new in Christ, setting our future hope on the glory that will come with the Father. So here are your questions for today. It says, the first one, why does Peter put so much emphasis on the imperishable over the perishable? What is the point that he's trying to make? Second, according to Peter, be holy means to live as who you are, not becoming something you hope to be. How do you find this liberating and encouraging? How encouraging is it to understand that you are holy. Your life is not you becoming holy. And lastly, if you were to examine your life, what would it reveal about where your hope lies? This entire passage is, is underscored by the idea that we are setting our gaze, setting our future hope on the coming of the Lord. We are, that is what we are looking forward to. If we are honest with ourselves, how often is our hope set on something different? I know for me that happens quite a bit. So let's, let's take the time to examine and ask the Lord to reveal in our lives where are the areas where I am actually setting my hope on something that will fade away. Father, thank you for today and thank you for just who you are and, and what you've done and Lord for your word. God, I just pray that as we, we go into our discussion time today, Lord, that you you would convict us, you would show us in our lives where we are not uh, living in such a way that is hopeful for our future. But Lord, I pray that uh, we would understand that we, you have made us holy, you've made us set apart. And Lord, I pray that we would walk away from here today understanding that our lives are to be distinct, our lives are to show others what it looks like to fear you, what it looks like to revere what you've done for us. And Lord, that people would see the love that you've shown us in their and in, in our lives as we show that to others. So Father, please be with us this morning in our discussion time. It's your name I pray. Amen.